Welcome to San Diego News Fix, The Backstory. I'm Luis Cruz. San Diego Gas and Electric is making a case before the California Public Utilities Commission to increase rates starting next year. SDG&E says it needs money for critical projects like wildfire safety and pursuing clean energy goals. But many San Diegans are frustrated with rising gas and electric bills. The average price for electricity in the San Diego metropolitan area is currently higher than anywhere else in the country. Given that tension, could asking for higher rates right now backfire? Joining us now to talk about some of the challenges of reporting on this story is Union Tribune Money reporter Roxana Popescu, topic editor Dan Berkey, managing editor Laura Sacalo, and we begin with publisher and editor Jeff Light. Jeff? Okay, thank you, Luis. Uh, really interesting story, uh, uh, Roxana, and uh, quite well reported, in my opinion. And I, I, I guess what I'm going to want to get at in today's conversation is uh, how these stories c- come about and the role of different players, in particular in this case, the uh, uh, PR uh, people for a company or a utility uh, that we're engaging with and, and uh, how they try to make information available or, uh, or shape that information or shape the context or occasionally to shape the story, uh, some of which I think uh, uh, was, was, uh, was being attempted uh, in this case. But let's, uh, let's just start at the beginning. Just describe a little bit the story that uh, ran uh, uh, last weekend on our website and in our paper. Yeah, thanks, Jeff, and thanks, Luis. Um, so this story um, was an interesting and a challenging one to report. Um, I, I was looking at this um, question of optics and mixed in with ethics, uh, mixed in with um, you know decision making by SDG need to raise you know to raise its its rates because for the reasons that Luis just mentioned, right? They have a lot of uh, projects coming up from wildfire safety to uh, cybersecurity. And so uh, they need more revenue, so they're making a case to the CPUC, uh, California Public Utilities Commission, uh, to get more money f- through from its ratepayers, from its customers. Um, now, this what was what's tricky right now to to ask for mo- for more money is that this is sort of consumers are are feeling that as salt on the wound, right? It's not the first time that the utility is asking for uh, higher rates, but it's coming at a very awkward time to make that request um, for a couple of reasons, you know. They've rates have been particularly high. There was a recent surge in natural gas prices, for example. Um, also, you know, consumers are have been hurt by a really tough economy, right? Uh, inflation and uh, people lining up at food banks and high rents. And so, to ask for more right now um, is going to fall very differently than you know asking for it in a different environment. Um, and also, I think there's been just mounting frustration and mounting momentum on the part of consumers to push back and a feeling that their concerns have fallen on deaf ears. Um, now, CG&E's leadership did, um, has spoken up about affordability. There was an op-ed, a commentary published um, in the Union Tribune last year where um, SCG&E's uh, CEO, uh, Carolyn Nguyen, had talked about ways that they could uh, bring value or bring savings to consumers. So that's on, that's on their mind. Um, but this story looked at, um, I guess, maybe the question of I'll just use that word fairness, you know, this and, and um, imbalances between what um, a, a, what one organization is earning and what other people are, are 
being asked to give. And of course, people don't know the inner workings of how, how utility functions. Um, and there's a lot of context and a lot of nuance. But even without knowing that, there's this gut feeling of we are giving too much. We can't give anymore right now. It's it's what's that expression? Squeezing something from a something. There's just nothing else we can give. Um, right. Somebody fill in the blanks there for me. Yeah, so it's right. like, stone. Thank you. That's what it is. Yeah, great. I was like, some there's uh, fill in the blanks. Yeah, thanks, Dan. Um, so it's kind of it's not a good look. And so I talked to different um, stakeholders from you know utility analysts, um, people who are uh, ratepayer kind of advocates. Um, talked to people who have worked on regulatory kind of proceedings more from my education, from my background, and of course also reached out to scg and &E and to its parent company, Sempra. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, good background. And, you know, to me, uh, the, 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 the topic of the story really is this uh, point where um, uh, a, a big company uh, is – meeting uh, low-income customers, right? So so they're selling to people of limited means, and it's sort of an income inequality story, right? Uh, you've got this vast rate base, which includes many people with uh, very limited means, and then you have this company that has profits in the hundreds of millions of dollars, and executives, another uh, uh, sore point of the story, uh, who are making uh, – many, many millions of dollars a year, all those things coming together around, oh, my bill. And of course, you know, I think they, those circumstances exist not just in the utility world, but in other, uh, other parts of our, our economy um, um, that have been uh, created tensions uh, as well. But um, before we get to that, Roxana, just tell me, like, as a reporter – you are dealing with uh, PR people for government or quasi-government uh, organizations like this one or private companies uh, routinely, right? Like, how does that work? What does a reporter do? And typically, what does a PR person do? Yeah, definitely. Um, I'm happy to answer that. Um, my, in my experience, it's a two-way street where I'll get approached with ideas um, from PR uh, professionals, you know, in, whether they're from PR companies or um, from from you know independent companies or from working for you know in-house um, and then in turn I also go to them and ask for for help on stories you know for example access to a certain person that I'd like to interview or from some data or statistics um, so, you know so they're kind of a, a what's the word like they're there's they're in some cases they're standing between me and the thing that I want and they help me get it in some cases they're standing there and they might um, for various reasons um, tell me that that thing that I want is inaccessible um, sometimes it's that they need more time to get something and, you know, that will shape the way the story is reported. You know, I need to I need more time on that deadline. Sometimes they say we can't uh, get you that information and that might I have to find a different way to get it or I need to push back or ask why. So there's a lot of different ways that that dialogue can play out. Right. So like from us, from the journalism side of the table. Yeah. We're uh, uh, thinking of these PR people as uh, uh uh, people who will help make information available from, in this case, the company. Hey, I've got all these different kinds of questions. Could you get me uh, uh, the answers uh, from the executives or uh, or just the factual data that I need to build my my, my story? And um, but sometimes uh, I think it becomes clear that from their side of the table, the PR people are tasked with not just providing information, but being concerned with how that information 
is going to be used, right? They're, they're worried about the reputation of the company. So how does that interplay work? Yeah, certainly. I think that um, the question of, you know, shaping a story, um, I, in, in various conversations um, with, you know, PR people, they, you know, there's a, this, this hope that, you know, if they come earlier into the conversation as I'm creating the list of story questions or the direction that a story might go in, there's a hope that they will have more say, you know, who, what's the emphasis? What am I de-emphasizing? So um, that certainly that's that's one way that it can play out. Um, yeah, go ahead and hit me with another question. I don't well, know if yeah, I'm that I, I, right direction. Uh, not oh, direction, no. like, what am I covering? Yeah, please go. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, the reason I asked that is because yeah. like, you know, the, I think that happened here, right? Somebody yeah. Yeah. Uh, didn't like the questions you were asking and I think became concerned, hey, this could cast our company in a bad light, or this could uh, uh, run crosswise to our uh, our business goals of achieving a rate increase, which is important for us to operate our utility by talking about things that could inflame public sentiment or uh, or uh, or create a political environment where uh, profits of utilities might be under pressure. So. Uh, I guess just, uh, you know, what did happen here as you pr proceeded on the story? Yeah, I think this is actually a really interesting case study. I mean, I'm a part of it, so it's hard for me to report on it objectively. But if I step back for a second um, of different types of PR slash reporter interactions, like we saw multiple facets of that dynamic in one story. Every, so in, in this being SDG&E and Sempra on on one side and myself on the other, Union Tribune on the other. Um, so we had, for example, a... I'll say good working relationship where I asked questions and questions were answered, right? That was one type of, of interaction we had. That's sort of, that's the, the best case scenario for a reporter all the way to within the same story, um, being asked to not publish a story and being um, sort of told that I, that my understanding of the topic was, was not adequate and that I had not reported it sort of in conformance with how they thought the story should be reported and that we, we should really not publish the story as based on the impression they had that this, of what the story was going to be from the questions I was asking. Um, so that's pretty wide gamut of everything from, I have a question, okay, here's the answer, to don't publish the story. And that on that, and I can get into a couple of intermediate steps or, you know, areas, but on the don't publish side, you know, that was spoken both to me and also, you know, there were conversations between editors. I mean, it was a pretty robust um, campaign to try to um, tamp down or to to pr prevent the story from going forward, the story that they thought was being published from going forward. Obviously, they didn't have a draft. They didn't have an outline. They're just going on the impression they had um, from uh, conversations that they had with me in emails. Um, yeah, so that's that's sort of a, a broad overview of kind of the different dynamics that played out within about a week of of interactions with. I mean, I, I've interacted with them for more than a week, but just in the story. It took about a week for things to go from, well, let's talk here. Some, some, we, we're happy to answer your questions, send them over to don't publish. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, uh, uh, any, uh, follow up, uh, uh since publication, uh, retraction demands, commentary, uh, feedback. They have not said anything, you know, they've not re expressed concerns with the way the story was written or reported, I, I have not, I sent them an email as I do actually after every story, I email all the sources, I thank them for their interviewer materials and I welcome their feedback and ideas for future coverage. Um, and I did not hear back on that email. 
Okay, so let's talk to Dan and Laura for a minute. So, so Dan, uh, as a, uh, a business editor at uh, a number of different outlets uh, over your career, I'm sure you've dealt with this kind of dynamic before. What, uh, what have your interactions been when people don't, when people are worried about a story coming, you know, from that PRN? Um, yeah, Roxane is describing a model that's become, you know, prevalent in corporate America, um, more so in the last 25, 30 years. Um, I, I saw it develop out in Silicon Valley. Uh, I think some of the, you know, better examples today might be Uber, Tesla, um, companies facing, um, you know, tough questions. Um, often employ a model where their initial response to a reporter is, you can't use any of this, I'm gonna to talk to you off the record. Here's essentially, here's a bunch of information that should convince you not to do the story or uh, it is not the story you think it is. Um, and at the point where that doesn't work and specific questions are being asked and can I talk to so-and-so within your company who is the expert on this? The answer is often no, they're not available. Uh, show me your questions and we see the questions we may go one direction which is you know terse answers to selected questions or the other one which is we're not answering these you're way off base um you know you're going down the wrong uh, rat hole here um so and to me a little bit of the context here is control i mean that's what this is all about and I mentioned Silicon Valley. I thought it was interesting how Silicon Valley came to employ this strategy more and more as companies felt they had more control and could exert control because, you know, I mean, there was a time, Steve Jobs is the famous example of somebody who would not give interviews or had very tight press access. You know, he, he was going to determine what photographer took his picture, if anybody. Um, that was true when Steve Jobs was powerful. There was a point in Steve Jobs's, you know, career arc where he went to start another company, Next Inc., after he left Apple, and he needed the press to some extent, and he was available. I, I have in my Rolodex, some of you will remember what a Rolodex is, I have a phone number for Steve Jobs, you know, back in the day, um, because he needed access. A lot of companies feel like they don't need the press as much these days. Um, and uh, in the case of Tesla, which is like way out on the on the other end of the scale, their CEO is constantly tweeting everything he thinks about, you know, his company or the world. And they laid off their PR staff because the PR staff was essentially there just to tell people go away. And, you know, I think they realized they didn't need somebody to do that. Their CEO was doing a fine job of it. Can I jump in? Can I jump in? Please and do. Oh, something. Oh, thanks. Yeah. On what, what Dan just, just described that phenomenon of the background um, conversation. That's actually what happened here. So one of the, this, one of the conversations I had with an SCG&E uh, PR uh, pro professional, like, you know, we talked for maybe 40 minutes, he gave me a lot of great material. And it was, you know, I wish I could quote, you know, every other, not every other word, but you know, there's a lot of material that would have really helped shape, shape parts of this, the story. I mean, to go into providing counterpoint and, 
um, information and context for readers. I mean, it would it was it was good conversation, but it was all on background. Um, and there's also, you know, he shared some some documents with me for me to do more reading. Unfortunately, this was at about I'm going to guess 2 p.m. on a Friday. The story was due, you know, <laughs> around 2 p.m. on a Friday. I mean, it was really tight. So for me to then go and do even more document, get more documentation, more reading after having worked on it for many weeks, you know, it was um, I w that kind of conversation could have happened earlier. And I wish it were not on background. It's just sort of um, it put it puts the reporter, I think, and it tries to put the reporter in a difficult position of, you know, playing catch up, not not being. Um, yeah, it's it's it's. Anyway, I'm sorry, I'm kind of fumbling with with that. Um, essentially, you know, there's if the material had been put on the record, if it were an open conversation, we would have had a different story. You know, they, it would have been a different outcome. So that gambit was um, I think that's where, where things kind of tw twisted or turned in that in the reporting of that story with with them. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think when that kind of thing happens, it's uh, uh, also a a an open question. Is this information here to better inform me? Mm -hmm. Certainly possible and very important. Or is this information being pushed across the desk to me at the 11th hour to to put me in conflict so that later it could be claimed, well, it, she wasn't prepared. She hadn't been through all the documents, mm -hmm. which, of course, uh, uh, can be a very successful tactic if, uh, if you've got a complicated topic and there's an endless list of documents that could come across your desk at the 11th hour. So you have seen how many tabs I had open. I mean, any reporter, right? <laughs> when you're reporting something, it's like, you know, computer crashed, crash level number of tabs. I mean, lots of research for that. You know, of course, I mean, that's what reporters do. So, right. But to hit us, to hit a reporter on the, you know, you're not informed, you don't know enough. That's really going at the nerve, the real, the jugular of a reporter, right? That's how to undermine our, what, what we're supposed to do. Our job is to be informed and to be to source, you know, to to do that that deep work to get on a in a position where we can write with authority and right. to and it, yeah, go it, ahead, please. Yeah. I was just going to say, and it, and in our mind, it's contradictory in the sense that the very exercise we're undergoing here is to find people know more than we do mm -hmm. and can inform us, and when we're being told we can't talk to those people. Um, or that information is not available, or you can't use those things. I just told you, it seems to fight that idea that we we want to be better informed. Completely. And by the way, I mean, to be told that I don't know enough about a topic, I mean, I know I don't know enough about a topic. I'm not coming from a position of, oh, I know everything about this, and that's why I published. I mean, it's, or, you know, that's why we, we in other words, there's always a position, I'm in a position of curiosity and of hum humility and, you know, always learning more. I don't, you know, I, I think that's an important distinction to make there are important Disclaimer, you know, I'm, it's not a position of arrogance and I know everything. I mean, a reporter, to be told you don't know enough about a story will obviously make a reporter, you know, yikes, because, yeah, I'm always worried that I don't know and there's more I should know. So I think that's very, you know, a very fair concern. I mean, I'm always asking, do I know enough to be able to, to go with the story? Is it ready to run? You know, um, in fact, the same story didn't, you know, for a week, a week earlier, it wasn't ready to run. So we ran it. We took more time to report it. And when it ran, it was ready to go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I do think, uh, obviously, we need to know enough to evaluate uh, the answers that, that we're getting to questions. But the job of a reporter is not to know the answers. The job is to ask the questions. So uh, we don't need to uh, know how to run a utility to ask questions about how utilities are run. Um, uh, this is a great topic, and we could go on all day. But uh, I just wanted to get to Laura Sakalo.
you two as managing editor have been at the other end of these kinds uh, of phone calls uh, uh, where, where somebody might be saying, hey, I'm concerned about the questions a reporter is asking. Uh, I'm worried that it indicates that, uh, that that their story will be uninformed or unbalanced. Those are, I think, are legitimate questions. Um, uh, why don't you share with me just a little of your recent experiences on contentious stories like this one? Well, I, as, as you say, there there have been many instances where I've been the recipient of those phone calls or those emails, just as as you have. And I think I think Roxana makes an excellent point. One way to really either get under the skin of a reporter or an editor or to undermine is to question not necessarily their expert knowledge on a subject, but do they know enough to be asking the right questions or are those questions that they're asking um, leading in the right direction? Similarly, just as easy to undermine to, to say, look, the questions that are being asked reflect a bias and we're concerned because we have every reason to believe this this story is not going to be fair be, based on uh, the conversations that we're having. And in in our discussions with Roxana in advance of this story running, I was reminded of, you know, our own experiences with the Ash Street stories, very similar. And I recalled a conversation that uh, Jeff McDonald, the reporter on those stories, and his immediate editor and I had in early 2020, um, in which there were probably six city officials or representatives on this call, all explaining how we didn't understand, Jeff didn't understand the story, and uh kind of a litany and verse in all the ways that uh, he was wrong about any assumptions he was making or the direction of the questions. And a line that just has rung in my head over and over again was one of the officials from the city saying, you know, this deal was constructed similarly to the Civic Center Plaza deal. And little did we know at the time how true that was and how that too should have been a red flag. But it was presented as there's a lack of understanding. We have, you know, this is not a new way to structure these deals and everything is fine. And there there was a very concerted effort in multiple places, I think, to kind of derail uh, Jeff's reporting. And concerns along the way about whether or not uh, we were on the right track or we're being fair. And I think it's always good for us to take a step back, make sure we are being fair, to take a breath and have those conversations internally. And I think I think we did that. We did that with Roxana's story. We certainly did it with, with Ash Street. Prior to that, we had very similar kinds of pressures um, around the Duke Cunningham story. And Lots of instances of being told we were off track, didn't know enough, didn't understand 
the process, didn't understand, um, you know, the defense contracting and how all that worked. And so I, you know, I think there are, there are certainly efforts, especially when somebody is concerned about their organization, their company, their livelihood, there is a lot of pressure to be applied to a reporter who may be digging where they don't want anyone digging. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'll just share uh, as on a, as a sort of a, a final thought, like, I really feel like that tactic is uh, very undermining to the PR professional community. Because, uh, you know, I had that same conversation with a uh, a, a high-ranking person in the Duncan Hunter circle, I guess I'll put it that way, to not out the person completely, all about how, hey, Jeff, between you and me, totally confidentially, I just want to share with you, this Morgan Cook doesn't know what she's doing. These stories about the uh, the congressman's uh, uh, um, campaign contribution disclosures, totally wrong and off-base, you really ought to be, you know, not be going there. Okay, so that tactic, which I think Dan described, of trying to have the secret confidence to uh, uh, to undermine the story by telling lies to the journalist, that's a terrible thing to do because we do need to know when we're wrong. We do need to know when we're off base. But when self-interested people use those tactics, it obviously uh, uh, um, undermines efforts in the future to have clear and honest communication. Um, so uh, so we can put that in our journalism textbook for the day, I guess. Thank you, team. Very interesting conversation and a very good story as well. Roxana, Luis. Thank you very much, Jeff. And thank you to Laura, Roxana, and Dan. That does it for this edition of The Backstory. You can read more of Roxana Popescu's reporting on this topic on our website, SanDiegoUnionTribune.com. For everyone at the San Diego Union Tribune, thank you very much for listening and for supporting local journalism. Have a great day, everybody.